Good evening, Cincinnati. My name's Norma, and I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to thank the committee for asking me here, and Terry for picking me up so gracefully at the airport. He didn't have a sign, but I knew he knew I was the only Mexican in Cincinnati. <laughs> it is an honor and a privilege to be asked to speak at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I am truly grateful. Everything I'm going to say here tonight, my opinion, my opinion only, I don't know if this is the way my life went down, but it's the way I feel. First and foremost, I want to welcome all the newcomers to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to let you know it works. It works good, and it works slow, <laughs> You can tell I'm a Mexican, right? And I'm of the Mexican variety that my family had parties Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And in the olden days, they didn't buy six packs of cases of beer. They bought eggs of beer. With those big blocks of ice and those chunks of salt. They used to keep it in the bathroom. And I believe I was born with the disease of alcoholism. I also believe I was born a liar. And a manipulator. That comes natural to me. You know, Bill W. wrote the common becomes the uncommon. And that is my common state. You see, when I was a kid, they thought it was cute to give us all a glass of beer. So I used to go from relative to relative <laughs> to get me that beer. I love the way they beer tasted. I would go into the bathroom and sneak in there and put me nothing but foam beer. I love phone cane beer. <laughs> the first feeling I remember having as a child, I always felt lonely, unloved, and unwanted. I always felt timid and meek and frightened as a child. I remember I, that I used to sleep in a little walk-in closet when I was a child. And I used to wake up in the middle of the night and cry and yearn for my mother. You see, I have an older sister and she used to get to sleep with my mother. I never understood why I didn't get to sleep with my mother. The truth of the matter is I went to bed. <laughs> That's why I didn't get to sleep with my mother. But you know, when you're four years old, I just felt unloved and unwanted and rejected. And that high felt in the core of me. I was also a battered kid. I was beat a lot. My mother was very violent. My mother was an alcoholic. And let me tell you what kind of kid I was. <laughs> You know, when I was a kid, they never let us have a uh, soda or chocolate or potato chips to take back for your hair, back for your, for your teeth. Um, I lived behind my grandmother's house, and my grandmother always had a two-pound box of cheese. So when nobody was around, I'd sneak in there and slam that chocolate in my face. I still eat it like that today. And, um, and my mother would show up and she'd say, Norma, did you eat that chocolate? And I'd say, no. She'd got me by the arm and give me that rapid fire, and I'd say, no, 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 I swear I didn't eat it, I didn't eat it. She'd got me by my arm, take me to the mirror, and there'd be chocolate all over my face. And I don't know how it got there. Because, you see, my head would pay, the price I would pay for telling the truth would be so much greater than if I hung on to the lie. And I always hung on to the lie. I always felt that it would be so much more painful if I told the truth, and I never felt safe, I never felt close enough to be able to say the truth to her, because I was terrified of her. You know, I believe that God always provides somebody safe, and my grandmother was my safety, and I loved her very, very much. 
When I was eight years old, he moved to Mariloma. Now, I am from the city of Orange. I am a Chicana. I should be from Santana. But no, I'm from Orange. And uh, we moved to Mariloma, which is all country living and farmland. We had a three-day weekend baptism. I was eight years old, and I had my first three-day blackout drunk. I remember it was Friday, and then it was Sunday. And I came to about one or two in the afternoon. I was walking alongside the house, and I heard them inside talking about me, about how much I had drunk, and who had given me so much. And that was the first time I ever felt shame anymore. I didn't know what I did, but I knew it was bad. It was such a, such a empty feeling inside of me. And I'm also a recovering Catholic, if there's any Catholics in here. <laughs> but back in the day when I went to Catholic school, you going to the to the priest again. First and foremost, they said God was keeping the card. And he was a punishing God and he was going to get you if you go through his rules. I always get the rules. I go into the, into the little room, tell the priest, maybe I lied once or twice or stole a half a time. I wasn't telling him anything either. And then they said you're supposed to take the body of Christ in the morning, not supposed to eat. I always say, just to see what God's going to do, right? <laughs> I didn't care who I was testing. But I remember as a child, you know, I used to go out where the horses were. And I remember singing to God. I used to pray to God to please bring my daddy back. Because when my daddy was around, my mother wasn't so violent. You see, my mother used to beat on me and beat on me. And then she would come after a time. And she would be crying. And she would love on me. And she would tell me how much she loved me. And she always said how much my father loved me. And he was sick. You see, they used to say that my father was away in college. And my father was a heroin addict, so he's in the tent a lot. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I used to go out where the horses were, and I used to pray to God to please bring me my daddy back. And I used to look for my daddy and my good mommy, the loving mommy. I used to think that someplace, somewhere she was sad. I used to think that I would find them just safe, you know. I used to look for them where they keep the oats and the hay. I used to think that someplace, somewhere, I would find them, and everything would be okay. I always lived in a delusion of an illusion. And um when I when God didn't bring me my daddy back, I got mad at God and I gave him the finger. I said, I am never gonna pray to you again. And I meant it with everything I had. When I was ten years old, my mother got told an alcoholic phenomenon and she moved us to Pomona. Where the girls rubbed their hair up, wore tight skirts. In the fifth grade, okay? <laughs> and they used to wait for us every day after school, and they would wait for us to give us our initiation, and I'd cry to the teachers, they're going to beat us up. On the last day of school, the guys and the girls cornered my sister, and they jumped her, and my sister was crying, and she was against the fence, and they quickly went, and they flagged down the car, and he went, and he grabbed my sister out of the mix, and he took us home. And that evening, when my mother came home from work, my sister started to tell her, what had happened, and my mother got all upset, and right away she got on the phone and she called, started calling the school district, and she made sure that my sister didn't have to go back to that school, and one more time, I wasn't loved enough, one more time, I didn't matter, because I had to go back to that school, and every day after school, those girls were waiting for me to beat me up, and every day after school, I cried to the teachers. You see, at home, I was the victim emotionally and physically. Not only through my mother, but also with my sister. At home, 
time I was timid and meek, and that was happening to me at school. I'm also a uh, I'm also a Mexican teacher. You know, I wasn't raised on beans and rice and tortillas. I mean, my mother was an alcoholic. She didn't cook. You know, she made beans one time and put spinach in it, okay? I was raised on pot pies, tea dinners, and bologna sandwiches. And that's still my diet today. I don't cook. So I, when my mother gets over, she decides to go on the diet. So then when she gets rid of the bread and the sugar, we got that nasty diet. That nasty diet. You know that soda with that saccharin in it? Oh, it was terrible. So I used to do these burglary food at other people's houses. I never thought about filling this up. I just went over there to eat. And in the olden days, we had the double desk, and the girl I said, my desk was a white girl. Now, I was not intimidated by the white girls. I was intimidated by the Mexicans. You see, because I never felt Mexican enough. Why? Because I didn't have a burrito, you know, and, uh, and I didn't speak Spanish then. And, uh, so one day, you know, I called my, 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 my desk partner, I called her a monkey, and she took it personal, and, um, so when I'm coming ba- back from school, uh, coming back to school after eating, she's coming to the playground with a couple of her friends, and her mouth starts to move like my mother's. She starts perspiring above her lip. I know what's coming next. Next thing I know, I hit her, I broke her arm, I blacked out, and all those polar said, don't cry, Norma. Wait till you get to the bathroom. You see, finally, finally, somebody was going to pay for the things that were going on at my house, you see. And that day, before my life took a split, at home I was timid and meek, and when I left, I was different. Instead of writing my hair up, wearing tight skirts, you know, and watch hobo stories. You know, that's kind of like Barney, you know, <laughs> while I'm doing that. I try to be a surfer, you can kind of see how that wouldn't take with me, you know. And my mother was a great aa She went to meetings every day. From 7.30 to 10 o'clock, Mama was at the meeting. From 7.30 to 9.45, we had the boys over. We're doing a little spray paint, a little glue. My drug of choice is whatever you got, right? Every now and then, Mama come home early from the meeting, catch the guy there. She wasn't prejudiced. She beat the guy's teeth. <laughs> I got a lot of, I got in a lot of trouble at school. Every time I was in trouble, my mom brought me to AA meetings. I went to Alateen. You know, I became my age. I went to Alateen. There are a lot of exciting things there. Anyway, she would bring me to the meetings. <laughs> and she would sit me in the front and I'd listen to the speakers. And I'd go, wow, what an exciting life they have. Too bad they're old and ain't got nowhere else to go to become the AA. <laughs> College is very resentful at Alcoholics Anonymous. First and foremost, I had this idea of what Alcoholics Anonymous was going to give me once my mother got sober. And you guys didn't do it. And, um, anyway, I wasn't too thrilled with Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not like, I did not, nothing. But it, it was. Anyway, my mother moved us to the other side. We did a lot of geographics and my mother said, we moved to a, uh, I think it's called Montclair. Montclair has no ghetto. You see, I took three buses. You know the book says, you know, you see lower companions. I took three buses to get to the barrio. That's the ghetto. You know, I was the best dressed girl in the barrio. Not only that, but the girls wanted to be my friends. Why? Because I had money. I had allowance. And I paid for everything, right? And if you had a problem with some shit, I'd take care of it. I had a lot of suppressed anger. 
and willing to share. Got in so much trouble. And like I said, I went to a lot of meetings. Anyway, uh, what happened is one day in between classes, I went to go smoke, and uh, all the girls in the shopping were talking about this guy. He was six foot three, blonde hair, blue eyes. He had a nice low rider and a car show. He wasn't in school. He had money. All the girls wanted to be with him. You know I had to have him. <laughs> you see, I didn't know what I liked, but if you wanted it and you thought it was valuable, I gotta have it. Anyway, I married this guy. <laughs> and he introduces me to Boone Farm, Apple Wine, and Red. You know what I thought I was buying before? As soon as I got that combination, it was gone. It's so funny. I don't know any social drinkers to drink a little wine and five sleeping pills to go with it. You know, and, uh, anyway, we went to a house party and I was passed out on the friend. He was going to the liquor store. And when he's coming through the door, he has a bag of booze. And some chick is coming through the door and she's got a bag of booze too. I knew he was with her. There was a beer bottle by me. I picked it up and broke it on his face. Yes, he's Shortly after that, I try to kill him again. And um, when he gets out of the hospital, his family sends him to Ontario, Canada. And when I get out of juvenile hall, I said, I'm really going to kill this guy. You know, the truth of the matter is I was devastated. How could he leave me? I wasn't done yet. So anyway, so this is the time when everybody used to hitchhike. And I start hitchhiking. Now, I have never been out of my chair. I'm 16 years old. I start hitchhiking. And I get as far as Columbus, Ohio. Now, you know there ain't no Mexicans in Columbus, Ohio. But I'll tell you what. I started drinking. I started partying. I started having fun. I forgot what my primary purpose was, right? What happened is shortly after that, my mom contemplated suicide and I moved back to uh, Montclair. And, you know, we didn't read it in Chapter 3. But, you know, I, like, got a little concerned about my drinking, and I said, well, you know what? I'm getting rid of that apple wine those bread. I know what I need. I need to get me a job and buy myself a car. I buy myself a 54 Chevy. You know, that came with a big stigma? But I put a little six inch because it can't see over the top. Get rid of that wine and those reds. That stuff made me too violent. I know. I switched to 151 Bacardi and all too poor. God, I loved Darcy and Bacardi. It was great. And uh, by then we moved back to Orange, back to Orange, and I'm training Ontario with my body. It's about 45 minutes away. So I'm from that gang, right? And this is the time when you feel that I had a really big during the cascade time. Remember the cascade, those hair pieces? I put two in there to get my hair as big as I could get it. Wear those double eyelashes on the top and on the bottom. Wear the line from the peak of my nose to my hairline and around and up. And wear those top pants and the spine. And we go, I go to Ontario and we beat up the girls from Chino, you know. The girls from out of town. And the next day we'd go pick up our hair where they pulled it out, right? <laughs> I did this every weekend. On Sunday, but the normies call it Monday. But I figure if I haven't gone to gone to sleep on Sunday, it ain't over yet, so I'd be coming home like 3 o'clock in the morning because I have to get up at 6 to go to work, and when I'm coming home, you know, I'm coming to my house, and uh, i got to take some flights if I get lucky, some black beauties, because if I don't, I'll pass out, I won't get up for work, 
You know, I didn't want my mom to think anything, right? So I'd set the alarm and the room would be spinning, you know, and, and I'd have to hurry up and go to sleep before those lights kick in. And it seems like I just closed my eyes and the alarm would go off. And I'd get up and I got to sleep. I'm 17 years old. I got to sleep. And, and my mom has a place where you don't want to close it. And I dragged myself to the bathroom to brush my teeth, but nothing serious, just a little creepy because it makes me gag. And you know I'm reeking of that 151. Of course, I got down in 151. And I need to take a shower, but I don't. Just had a little perfume nobody will notice and go to work, right? When I get to work, I say, tonight it's going to be different. Tonight I'm going to go home and get some rest. Tonight I'm not going to call the girls and see what they're doing. And, you know, I never considered myself a daily drinker, but I'll tell you what. Every day when the guys are going to have a lunch beer, I always had a lunch beer. A kawama, 40 ounces. You know, I didn't think alcohol beer counted. Beer was when I was an adolescent. You know, that wasn't alcohol. You know, 151 Bacardi now, that's alcohol, you know. And uh, and uh, so I never thought I was a daily drinker. But I don't know what would happen when I punch that clock. And I punch that clock, get into that low rider, kick in that cassette player of Donnie Hathaway, the ghetto, and cruise on down and call the girl, see what's happening. And do it over and over again. You see, at the beginning, I just started drinking uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then it went to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Wednesday, hump day. Then it went to Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday. I just went out and went to right? One big party. But what happened is, like, on, it must have been on a dumb Tuesday. You know how Tuesday ain't got no purpose? I mean, Monday is after the weekend, right? Wednesday, Thursday, I saw on the way down to the party, right? And Tuesday, what? You know, and, uh, anyway, my cousin invited me over to his in-law's house for some anniversary thing. And I must have just had that lunch here, like I said, it don't count. And, um, that day I, I had a shot of whiskey about this size. I don't know about you, but this is an opener. This ain't nothing. You see, I'm drinking when I'm bombing ruining my clothes. When you put the creases in my clothes? I'm drinking when I'm ironing my clothes. I'm drinking when I'm putting that work thing on. I drink in the shower. You know, doesn't everybody? And nobody ever talked about driving and drinking. It was like a normal thing. You know, like breathing. You know, and uh, anyway, when I went over to his uh, in-law's house and I had that little shot of whiskey, and the next day, my cousin's wife, who didn't drink, she came over to my house and said I had been all over a cousin of mine, that I had been sitting on his lap and stroking to his hair, and I cringed at the idea, you see, because I hated him. You see, when I was a little girl, I always felt like he was trying to molest me. I was terrified of him. So I got a little concerned if he said that. You know, and like I said, we, read, we didn't read it in chapter three. But I got a little worried. I, you know, I heard some things in AA. So I did just like chapter three says. I started driving seven, ten miles a day. Get rid of that alcohol. Just make a little weed. You know, it ain't bad. It's God given. It comes from the dirt, right? <laughs> I decided to go back to college and broaden my horizons, right? I moved into a reborn Christian furnished apartment. I'm not drinking, so I'm not violent. Take a hard class like political science. I gotta calm down because I'm worked up to smoke joints and read the same things over and over. Get an F. Never get off that same sentence. Took that class four semesters in a row. 
same seat, same instructor, same great nurse. Never miss a day in class, same F. And on the last day of class, I said, I know what the problem is. The problem is I'm stupid. My mother always said I was stupid, and I believed her. About this time, my sister called me up at 22 to come and that early I go, God, Lorraine, you just want to be like mom. She said that uh, Colorado Springs is a dry state for weed. So I sent her a little weed. She broke her sobriety. Obviously, she wasn't done. I helped her to remove all doubt, right? <laughs> I have made amends to my two sisters that I love. And I'm grateful that I love her because of you I love her. And uh, she just celebrated 22 years of sobriety in May. Um, but anyway, what happened is my girlfriend brought these two guys over to my dance department. And it had a shot of tequila. And then it went to two pints. She, she asked one of the guys where he lived. He lived by the Orange Circle. My mother lived by the Orange Circle. I had a few resentments with that lady. There was a baseball bat by me. Except a bat. That got on my girlfriend. Destroyed the apartment. Did her nipple. The guys left. The cops came and got in a physical conversation with the cops. Ran out the door, knocked on the landlady's door, and said, "Pray for me," as they're taking me to jail. <laughs> and it has been three years since I had a drink. And like I said, I heard a lot of stuff here, and I swore off again. And then I switched to a little social heroin. You know, heroin don't say the book says we can increase the list of infinitum. I get that. You know, and um, you know. The book also talks about incomprehensible demoralization. I can barely pronounce this word, but I am going to tell you what it is to live it. You see, it is the hardest part of my story to talk about. You know, before it was fun and exciting and thrilling, and then it changed on me. Well, what happened is I lived in one of my grandmother's homes, and she lived a distance away, and I started to run that house out to illegal aliens. I figured if they pulled on me, I'd call immigration, right? Well, all these families got together and they pulled on me. I don't even know how they knew each other because I didn't get them from anywhere close. Yeah. So anyway, after that happened, you know, and I went to jail. When I got out of jail, I had absolutely no place and nowhere to go. And I was 28 years old and that part of my life of living on the street. I put all my things in a shopping cart. Inevitably, heroin quit working and incorporated a little cocaine in the deal. And after a while, I started suffering from a lot of deep trees. I started seeing bugs crawl up my, my skin, and I would get the trees, and I would try to kill them. And I put all my eyelashes up, all my eyebrows up. had a big ball back, big ball spot in the back of my hair, and I had sores all up and down my hands. But behind that homeless alcoholic, I had layers and layers of clothes on, and I had not bathed, had flip-flops, and you just feet show up. And they're talking to themselves. I'm that alcoholic that is always trying to show you the bug. And you step away from me. You know, I never sold my body out there because I didn't think anybody would buy it. I weighed 76 pounds. I wore a size 7 little girl. And I thought I looked fine. You know, I used to walk those streets in the middle of the night. Never knowing where I was going to stay or where I was going to sleep. And I will be always grateful to the women of the night. Who had the courage to at least sell their bodies. I was desolate. I was in such an empty and a lonely and a dark place and I was out there 
I would yearn for some oatmeal or some warm toast. I would stand out on the free eating lines at, in the wee hours of the morning, and as I'd be going down the line, the first one in line for some warm toast and oatmeal, and they would give me cold toast, and I'd start hollering and screaming, and gave 80 50 from the Salvation Army eating line. <laughs> you see, I was always a victim when I was out there. After a while, nobody wanted to be around me because I was so angry, so enraged. I didn't know what happened to my life. And I knew I would never go back. I knew I would never have another chance at life. I would walk those streets on those rainy nights, and it'd be raining as it smell like a wet dog. It took me three years to get female feet from all the cracks and all, the, oh, all that disgusting stuff. You know, and I used to walk those streets, and I used to yearn for my mama, and I would call her up, and she would just love on me. Today, the other day I was telling her how much I was grateful, how much she would just love on me. She would don't think I'd be next to you, but I would hear it, right? You know, because all I could hear was the love in her voice. That's all I could hear. And I always told her everything was okay. You see, because everything becomes okay. I, that became my common life. You know, and I would walk those streets at night, and I would slip asleep with one eye open in the parks in the daytime. And I knew I was never going to get out of that life. I just didn't understand why my body wouldn't go down. I used to make a lot of trips to the county jail. I had everything I wanted in the county jail. Mama would send money for the cigarette. Then you could smoke, now you can't smoke. And now, uh, one day on this particular day, one of my girlfriends was going to prison, and she said, Mommy, you better call your mom and ask her for help. And I had called my mother many, many, many times. And she was like, kind of, she threw with me. And she said, for God's sake, Norma, I'm making dinner for Johnny Harris. If you want to get sober, you write to this place in MBO. I never heard of MBO. She said she was going to send me to the best recovery home that she knew. I went around that jail saying, I'm going to Betty Ford. I'm going to be sending the money with Elizabeth Taylor, right? That's when she was making those trips. I always got to be a cut above even if I'm in jail, right? I always have the connection in there, you know what I mean? Anyway, uh, she, one of the ladies picked me up and they were taking me over to uh, India. And I don't know if you've been to India, but it's all sand and tumbleweed. And it's in the middle of the night and you get off the freeway. I think we're going to Central Office and up to the mountains where the sun and the mud is. And we roll in front of this two-story house. It's in the middle of the night. Nobody's there. And we roll down an alley. On one side of the alley is four cats. And the other side of the alley is a sitting gallery. A sitting gallery is an old broken-down house with no windows, full of graffiti that smells like feces and urine and back home. And on the other side of the alley was those four cats. We all know what cats mean. Mean smile. I go shoot. I got loaded in better places than this. I ain't staying here. And I always remember AA is being old people. And bigger than Hootman, here comes this old lady down the bed. She tells me to sleep on the couch and don't use the phone. You know all night I'm thinking, who can I call? Somebody get me out of here. <laughs> But the only person I could call did drop me off and went on her way, right? So there was nobody. I had long, long since on my bridges. In the morning when that sweet old woman who had passed away, she asked that question you're not supposed to ask arrogant people. 
She asked me what my brother's voice was. And I said, heroin. And she said, did you ever use alcohol? And I said, yes. And she said, can you see how your alcoholism led you to try other things? And I said, yes. And I believe that that was my first moment of clarity to go careful we identify ourselves as an alcoholic. We no longer want to be different. The person that might save your life that day might just relate with the alcohol and not the other. He said, you get a sponsor and you work the best. Now I've got a sponsor who had 27 years of sobriety. I wanted someone who knew for himself. Not only that, but my mother had 23 and a half years of sobriety and my sister had eight and I wanted to stay with her. Anyway. And, um, so I started working the steps and, you know, I never thought I was crazy. You know, I said, she said crazy. You know, I ate out of trash cans, but I was not a dumpster diver. You know, I ate out of good trash cans like the Holiday Inn, Howard Johnson. You know, that's why I wasn't a dumpster diver. You know, I couldn't relate to that. And then when they said the girls got to get like a mustard seed of, I mean, I told you I kicked God out of my life when I was eight. Now you know that this is a God program, and I got a little upset when I found out it was a God thing. And you know, they said, just pretend there's something. So in the desert, it's very windy. So I told the wind is my God. You see, I cannot see what makes that tree move, but I can see the tree move. I cannot see what turns up that sound, but I can see the sound stir. So every time it touches my face, I acknowledge that that was God, and I said, please keep me sober today. And the night time I said, thank you. I don't even know if I believed it, but I said it. And one day we had this big old place where we had a meeting on my sick, and I was coming through that during lunch, and I don't know how it came to me or if somebody said it to me, but what came to me was, you know, Norma, you've been a phony all your life just to handle something. So that's what happened for me. That's how it started for me. When I was 30 days in that recovery home, because I went from jail. I had 23 days from jail, and then I went to this recovery home. And this only Chicana in India took me to a meeting in Palm Springs. A woman said, my first meeting outside of the recovery home, there was a big meeting, nothing but women that were sitting around these tables, all white women, burly, looking good, nice cars, jewelry. And um, in the middle of the meeting, she gets up and she starts serving coffee. And you know my head says, mm-hmm, they make a Mexican serve a coffee here, huh? <laughs> so when she's taking me home, I get her up. I said, well, we'll have to serve the coffee. She looks at me like I'm from Mars, right? And she goes, no, Norma. I do it without them. I can't stay sober. I do it because I'm grateful. I do it because I love them. I do it because it's a reason. It says, we are powerless of that. You know, and she taught me about service. And I started to do those things, like they say. And um, when I was eight months sober, they let me have a little job. And I got a job in the hardware store. And on November 27th of 1989, the day after Thanksgiving, uh, the assistant manager asked me to get some Christmas trees out of the attic. You can tell I have a big mouth. I start hollering. I start complaining. Why are you picking me? Why don't you take one of them guys? And I'm going. And, and I'm like, Talking all the way up the stairs and get those, uh, the artificial things I get them and I'm always dancing and I'm moving them and I'm complaining. And as I get further and further into the attic, the attic gives way and I talk to stories. 
I forgot to tell you, when I got sober, I weighed 76 pounds. In four months, I went up to 152. <laughs> I wonder if that's why I fell through the attic. Oh, I ain't a little hefty there. Anyway, I fell through the attic, slammed into those metal shelves that you see at Home Depot. And I was going so fast and weighed so much, it swung me back up again. And I landed on the floor. And both times, I landed on my feet. And I didn't even break anything. <laughs> Just a couple of teeth, but they were probably on the rod anyway, right? But what I got from that day is that I got beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had a plan for my life. And I believed it with all my heart as I do today. And I was 16 months or 18 months sober that grandmother that I loved and I adored. She died. And my mother, we were not talking at the time. She called me at the recovery home and she said, Mama, we have to mend our ways, our differences. She goes, your grandmother was just dead. And I got mad at God. I said, take my mama, take my sister, two for one, but give me my grandma back. <laughs> you see, I wasn't done loving on her. I wasn't done spending time with her. I wasn't done staying with her when you were teaching me today. But when God takes something away, he always replaces it with something else, you see. And what I had to do is I had to pick up the piece of paper and the pen and write five more inventories on my mother and my sister so I could let them off that expectation book. I forgot to tell you, I had seven affairs my first year and a half of sobriety. I know that God uses my defects of character to keep me where he wants me to be. Because they were the attraction. It had been a long time since anybody noticed me. I wore a size 7 little girl. I had sores all over my face. I have no eyelashes. I look bad. You know? <laughs> and they were the attraction. And um, I was in a 12-year relationship at the time. And I thought, I said, if I just call on the phone and say, baby, it's over, that that was enough. But I could say, to my own self, be true. And in my heart, I wasn't over. And I came back, I went back to Los Angeles to mend that relationship. I'm also here to tell you, you don't get all your loved ones back just because you get sober. I tried for five years to mend that relationship and I could not. Uh, I, uh, what happened is I tried for five years and I couldn't mend that relationship. And one day while I was doing the laundry or doing the dishes, my vision of doing the dishes was sitting in the dishwasher. And, um, and it came to me, you know, that the, you know, Bill W. wrote, the good is the enemy of the bad. And I'm always willing to settle for a good relationship instead of the bad. So I made a conscious decision. About three months after that time while I was leaving that, the job that I worked with, I worked there for five and a half years. It was my first job when I moved to L.A. And the company got sold. And the new owners told me they were going to keep me. And an hour before the takeover, they gave me my seventh day. And I felt lied to. I felt deceived. And uh, I put all my things in my car. And I was going home. And back in those days, I used to have a designated playing place. Like, I felt like you couldn't play any place else. Not in the car. No way. I had to hurry up, run, and get in front of the bed in the right spot in the right place. You know, and pray. And I was crying there, praying. And the... And I remember that I was crying there and I was thanking God for letting me experience the pain. You see, because I'm always so quick to thank for the good things. But I don't thank for learning things. And I remember what Mother Teresa said. She said, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. 
but she wished she didn't have so much confidence in her. <laughs> I knew what she meant that day. You see, I thought that job was what made me. I thought that relationship was what made me. And it's not. It's AA that makes me. It's the book. It's the text. It's looking at others that makes me. So, you know, I, I started liking live, you know, being on the phone. When my grandmother died, she left me a little money. And, you know, my TRW, I don't know if you guys have TRW here. And that's where all your credit, if you don't pay your bills, it goes on the credit report. I had so much stuff on it. I had a gas bill that was $60 back and gas was a dollar and a quarter month. I had $28,000 on that TRW. I didn't even know I made so many trips to the hospital when I was on the street. So I started making those payments one at a time. I'd call them up and tell them like they say for us to tell them that we're getting sober and want to write it. And they wrote 20%, uh, 80% of it and I only had to pay 20%. And it took me about three or four years to clean that up. And I remembered I owed a girl money. And so I was, one more time I was driving in my car and I was thanking God for allowing me the courage to do this. And when I get in front of the door and I knock on the door, she says, get away from here. We don't want your kind here. If you don't get out of here, Norma, we're calling the cops. And I'm thinking, I remember I owed her some money. And I talked there. And I said, well, you see, when I lived on the street, the cops would come and they'd give me a ticket for a pair, you know, paraphernalia, or they'd give me a ticket for open container, disturbing the peace, making a run. You know, they give you these tickets and you're supposed to go to court. Well, I never went to court because I was always too busy, right? So they always went into one. So the next time when the cop would come, he'd come and ask me my name, and I'd have to think of somebody else's name, which is who I thought of. I picked up two felony beasts in her name. She was a little resentful. They picked her up. So when I, I'm remembering this as I'm standing in front of her door, and I'm shaking, and I pause as it's in the book, and I ask God to help me, and I knock on the door again. And I say that I'm sorry for any pain I had caused her. That she had been nothing but kind and loving to me. That I wasn't there to win her friendship. Only there to right the wrong I had done. And she opened the door. I want you to know I was a little concerned to walk in there. Because there was a lot of them Mexican people in there. Her mother, her sisters, and her brother-in-law. And so I walked in there and I started telling them, like outlined in the book. You know, it just like came right out. I didn't even give it a thought. And I said that if I didn't do this, that I would surely think again. And her family said, good, good, keep up the good work. But they didn't get the check. The check was like five or seven hundred dollars. I was so excited. I had the money. Two weeks later, she called me up and she told me she wants the, she wants the money. I get a little resentful. I have to call my sponsor. She should have took the money when I was offering it to her. <laughs> I'll bet off, right? But my, my sponsor, who I'm going mm. to break her anonymity, is Claire Clairvin. And I call her up and I tell her what the girl wants from her. And she goes, oh, Norma, just give them back the kit, Nick. Okay. And I was unemployed. And, uh, I mean, my sponsor can be so blunt. She would say things to me, we're self-supporting through our own contributions. I go, I'm self-supporting. She goes, really? I go, yeah, it's my savings, my unemployment. She goes, what is it on my course, my savings? She goes, and that's what you do with it. You save it. She goes, I want you to put three resumes a week. I go through the paper, all resentful. I put three places I don't want to work. 
I know you guys aren't like that, but I could be really bad, defiant. So that's my resume with three places, three places. This guy calls me on the phone, and I'm on the phone. I'm talking to one of the girls I thought that we're going to go to lunch and do this. I love staying home. <laughs> so I click over, and I go, well, what is it? What is it? And I go, oh, no, I don't want to do that. So about two weeks later, he calls me, and he calls for my sponsor every day. He's saying, you're looking at me, you're looking at me, you're looking at me. Like, oh, so he asked me to go to the seminar. So I remember my sponsor, and he saw So I'm going to, I go, I'm going to go. Just to get the heat up from my sponsor, I'm going to any length, because I always have a little word. And, uh, so I go to this, uh, this thing, and, uh, when he, when my dad, he takes me to his office, and he goes, what do you think? And I go, it's okay. And he goes, and, and I go, how much does it pay? And he goes, he tells me how much it pays. And I go, oh no, I can't work for that. I need $400 more a month. He goes, okay. And he goes, when can you start working? I go, I need a two-week vacation. He goes, okay. About three or four days before I was going to start, I call him over the time I want to start on April Fool's Day. I thought the joke was going to be on him, right? Because I was only trying to stay there three months just to get the heat off, because I didn't want to do the job. And anyway, I stayed there uh, almost four years. It was the best job I ever had. And what that told me is that I don't know what's good for me. And unfortunately, the uh, economic, the, the economy went really bad and he had a lot of financial problems and I had to leave because of the cut in pay was too great. And I got another job. And then I got fired three months after that. And I was devastated. And my, and I went into that spiral that we get from relationships when they leave us before it's time and the job that left before it's time. And I got a little distressed. I got a lot self, more self-centered. I went to meetings. I got my sponsor. When I came home, it was waiting for me. And I got devastated. And I felt like, what, God, haven't I suffered enough? You know, I started going to that self-pity thing. You know, and, uh, you know, and I went through the motion and I didn't ever feel that that was ever going to change. I thought it was going to always be like that. And I got this job. I took any job. And it was the worst job I ever had, and I loved it. You see, because I took gratitude from my head into my heart. I was grateful that I had a purpose. I, I was grateful that I got a little paycheck. I was grateful that at least I was out of my self-centeredness. I got another little job, and I got, um, you know, I've been in many relationships. I, I got involved about not say six years ago with a nanny. Fourteen years younger than me. But what I learned from that is they really think different than I do. You know? <laughs> I went back to that relationship twenty-five times. The book called the book calls it countless being a change. You know, I have a great relationship with my mother and I have a great relationship with my sister and I learned to have a relationship with having a relationship with you. You know, I've learned how to put my blinker on to make my amends to my fellows. You know, I have learned so many things that I can't even explain them to you. You know, I believe that God looks at my defects of character like when you have a little tiny baby puppy. You know, when they're so small and tiny and you hug them so close and they grunt and smell like baloney. <laughs> and in the nighttime, you make them a little place to sleep. And in the morning when you come, he's made little tiny baby poo-poo and slams his foot in him. 
Don't they always find their foot in the stuff? You know, you don't beat the dog. Just spin up the stuff and love on him and send him on his way. And I believe that that's how God looks at my defects of character. Because without them, I won't change and I won't grow. You know, I have gotten to live two lifestyles in one lifetime. I never did a good deed to deserve it. And I have more than I need. And I have more than I deserve. And you know, I'm never going to do it the way you think I should do it. And I probably won't do it the best way I could do it. But I thank God I'm not doing it like I used to do it. Thank you.